Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. It's Wednesday, August the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff who are manning the post at this very quiet time of the year. Jack, I was just trying to find out from Wikipedia when exactly the dog days of summer are supposed to happen. And there's a bit of a dispute about when they actually fall. But I don't think there's much doubt that we're in the dog days of politics right now. No, uh, there's not. And uh, I say that as my voice booms out around the echoey and empty corridors of power here in Leinster House, um, which is in its midsummer slump. And you can tell that not only because of the near total absence of TDs, ministers and advisors, but because of the amount of work they're doing just around the place, fixing lights, doors, etc. Um, and it's, it's very depopulated. And it does feel a little bit like, um, I don't know, myself and Jen, I think are here for all of August. And there's a kind of heart of darkness fog that settles in on the political correspondent in the middle of August. I kind of feel like Pat Lee's going to come back from holidays and we'll both have turned into a couple of Colonel Kurtzes, you know. We'll be surfacing, <laughs> we'll be surfacing out of this kind of, this, this, this misty miasma of mid-August uh, political coverage um, and, and have gone totally insane. And as you can tell from this diatribe, that process okay, is well, well I can, I can see that. And you, you know, your face paint is, is pretty impressive. And I, I hope those aren't some bodies I see hanging behind you in the office. But um, <laughs> it, it can still be for those of the political class and politicians in particular, a sort of a perilous time because there's so little going on um, that the slightest, you know, slightest kerfuffle, the slightest uh, um, disruption in the force can get a lot more attention than it might do when everything else is busy. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of this story, which is a, you know, bona fide, a valid story and quite interesting about the junior minister, Robert Troy, for example. Yes. Um, we t- I think we talked about this on the last podcast before uh, we broke up for summer, where we were talking about this phenomenon of, of the August story, and we were wondering if they didn't manage to get the climate targets off the pitch before August, whether that would become you know the locus of all the kind of free-floating uh, journalistic energy that uh, hangs around during August. And, and they did, and nothing has really emerged, and there's been like a, just a very early budget cycle where people have started writing budget stories quite early in the piece. But um, last week, uh, the, the, the investigative website, The Ditch, started publishing uh, stories about um, Robert Troy, the Fianna Fáil Minister of State in the Department of Enterprise, and uh, Longford Westmeath TD, and his various uh, property interests and property holdings. It, it started out with a story about a, a rental property that he owns in Fibsborough and kind of grew from there to detail um, properties that he owns or owned in his own constituency. Uh, two in particular, which uh, at, at certain points um, 
certainly in relation to one of them, he failed to register on his on the Dáil Register of Members' Interests at all. And in relation to another one, he uh, registered it for the majority of the time that he owned it, but failed to register it in the uh, in the the year that he sold it. Now he has he has pled uh, that it, this was done in error, and he didn't realise that you had to disclose that you. Um, owned a property if you didn't own it at the end of the year in question when it comes to your register of members' interests. Uh, one of the interesting kind of subplots to this, though, that emerged latterly is the fact that both of these uh, properties uh, were ultimately sold to local authorities in his constituency for use as social housing. Um, so that raised a, a second and associated issue uh, the first being, you know, his compliance or otherwise with his obligations on the register of members' interests. And the second, the fact that he was a counterparty to a deal uh, where local authorities were, were spending quite a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of euros purchasing properties off him. And that raised an associated question and is now the subject of a uh, complaint from the people before Prophet TD. Paul Murphy, uh, of whether he had an obligation to disclose that he was in receipt of these monies, that he was effectively in a business dealing with a local authority. Um, so there's, there's, and we're, we're into the weeds a little bit on this, uh, I'm conscious of that, but there is an obligation on TDs and ministers to disclose on the registered members' interests if they're in a contract with a public body which involves the uh, sale of goods or services to an equivalent or greater value than €6,500. And Robert Troy's uh, explanation is that given that this is a property involved rather than a good or a service, this obligation didn't rest on him. Now, I, I spoke to SIPO, the Standards and Public Office Commission, yesterday about this, and while they won't discuss specific uh, cases, they did give a kind of in-the-round abstract general answer to this, which seemed to support Robert Troy's contention that they didn't view it as good or service, and therefore there was no obligation on him to disclose it. So, uh, you know, one, one could argue, and I'm sure Robert Troy would argue that, you know, there, there the matter would lie, um, but... I suspect this may run another little while because for two for two reasons. First of all, I mean, there is a political whiff test, I, I would say, over a minister, although he wasn't a minister at the time, but a TD being involved in these kind of property transactions with the local authority, just whether there's that's kind of politically palatable to, um, to members of his own party or indeed to voters. And then there's this, if it is indeed the case, and it does seem to be the case that uh, TDs don't have to declare when they're in receipt of monies from business dealings uh, and property dealings with local authorities or other state bodies, why on earth don't they have to? It would seem to me that, that is, that's a yawning gap and, and one that quarter should be remedied. So this this goes further and, and you know, there, there, there's questions of other uh, property deals he's involved in. There was one in the, in the Mail on Sunday earlier on this year, um, himself and, and Joe Dolan's nephew, actually, funnily enough, uh, planning to invest in um, commercial units in Mullingar again and convert them and sell them on to uh, the local authority. And there seems to be another uh, another property which he uh, declared on his uh, members' interest in 2019 but failed to do so in 2020. And my understanding is that there was a, a putative plan or an early stage plan again to to convert that property into apartments and uh, that there was a dialogue ongoing, although no no deal ever materialised with the local authority again to sell them as, uh, as as either social housing units or just apartments to the local authority. So, you know, it's, it's, it's in some ways, you know, it's, it's a it's a landlord Fianna Fáil Minister of State with multiple property interests, properties being sold to local authorities. There's also this question of rent being collected in cash, which emerged again on, on the, the website The Ditch, which he doesn't dispute. I mean, never mind August, it feels a little bit like John B. Keane from time to time around here. And there is, and, you know, we'll, we'll let 
Sippo make its determination and Robert Troy has made clear that he doesn't believe he did anything wrong apart from a couple of errors in his in his submissions. But there is something about the fact that one of those houses he bought at quite a low price from uh, a Fianna Fáil colleague, a local councillor, and that he sold it again within three months for nearly twice the price, although he says that he put quite a lot of work in, in, into that house. Yeah. And then we're told that that sale to the local authority was actually well below market value. Kind of to me begs the question of what was the original price that he bought from the councillor at? Was that at market value? I think it was about eighty thousand. So this is uh, the Ash Lawn property that he purchased in May of twenty nineteen, and as you say, he bought it from a colleague, a, a long-standing Fall councillor there called Bill Collentine, uh, who had apparently tried to sell this property with a tenant in it in twenty seventeen for about seventy thousand. Was unsuccessful in that effort. Uh, then it was detenanted and uh, Troy bought it, I believe, in, in 2019. And very rapidly, it seems, invested money in the then empty and dilapidated pro- uh, property and was able to sell it within a matter of months uh, at a significant markup. He would obviously, I think the, the, the ultimate price was somewhere in the region of double what uh, he paid for it, he would obviously say that you know he sunk, he sank quite a bit of money into it in the interim. Therefore, he didn't double his money, so to speak. But it, this is also the the only property that was never declared at any time on his register of members' interests. Again, Troy says that this is because he was under the mistaken impression that he didn't have to declare a property if he didn't own it at the close of the year, and therefore, having bought and disposed of it within the same calendar year, he never had an uh, an obligation, or he felt he or he thought he never had an obligation to to disclose that and and uh, he's now correcting the register of members interests on this but um look there are many threads to this story and uh you know people are starting to pick at them so who knows which way it's going to go and also i think underpinning it all is as i said at the, at the top not just this notion of whether he is at rights with his regulatory obligations but also the kind of the political element of his we- of it as well whether people think it's palatable uh, or you know correct uh for um a politician to to have this kind of this kind of extent of of property dealings and just how that will go down with with voters and people in the wider kind of political community in the constituency or indeed in Leinster House, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And we have seen cabinet ministers being asked about this regularly, partially because it is August, so anyone who sticks their head above the parapet gets asked about the issue of the day. And you know, when you have things like collecting rent and cash and and being party to schemes where you're selling on to local authorities, I think the obvious question to put to cabinet ministers is, you know, would you do something like this? Yeah, um, Jen, I mean, we know that elected politicians are entitled to carry on business and other walks of life while they while they are elected politicians. And uh, then there are requirements on them to make those to make those dealings uh, public through SIPO. And as, as Jack points out, there may well be a loophole which has been uh, or a gap which has been revealed by by this case already in relation to property transactions. But the broader picture, which might be more important, isn't it, is isn't that this feeds into what is a very popular narrative right now, which is that the political parties who are in power do not really understand the challenges which are faced by the rent-paying classes, the people who are trying to get in the housing ladder, the people who are affected by, by homelessness and by the property crisis, and that in fact many of them are on the other side of the interest fence, I suppose you could say. Yeah, like the really important backdrop to all of this, I guess, that kind of gives the story an increased relevance is the fact that there is this absolutely desperate housing crisis, um, which shows no signs of improving whatsoever in the immediate term uh, anyway. 
And like, I think people probably would have been very interested to to find out. And certainly I had no idea myself that it was the case that ministers and TDs could sell property to local authorities or anybody or any other public body without actually having to say uh, or disclose those those transactions, and that's what that's what SIPO have said in, in in this instance, and it does feed into that narrative that you've you've mentioned there, which is something that the opposition often paint the government and the government parties as being part of, which is you know the parties of landlords, um, and how could these people talk about supporting tenants when a lot of them have property interests or rental properties and surely there is a conflict of interest there. And that's a debate that has played out many, many times down through the last few years and is even more relevant now than than ever before. And I think it probably would be interesting to hear, I, I would firstly it'd be interesting to see the updated register, which Robert Troy has said he will uh, which he said he will do, but also I suppose to hear maybe an explanation around why it is the case that there is this, like you say, I suppose the best way to describe it uh, is this gap. Um, and, you know, the the history of the story that Jack has outlined really, really well is, is just so interesting because Robert Troy, you know, he was a councillor in Westmead between 2004 and 2011. And he bought the first house in question, I think it was at a, a Criminal Assets Bureau auction in 2006. So clearly this is a historical property. Um, now, he, like Jack said, he did declare it as a rental property um, every year until he sold it in 2018. Um, but he didn't do it after he sold it to the, the local authority. So I think there is that gap there uh, in terms of those transactions with public bodies. And that's certainly something that I think we'll see more questions. But exactly like Jack says, in the quiet August period, any minister or TD puts their head up um, above the parapet will be asked, and would you do it? And have you done it? Um, and what is the extent of this exactly? Yeah, um, this is not the only story from the small investigative uh, journalism website, The Ditch, which has caused big ripples across the media or continues to cause them this week. was um, the story which was our front page lead on on Monday this week is the ongoing saga of Onboard Planola and the and investigations into some of its processes. Uh, listeners can uh, have a listen to our sister um, podcast in the news from the Irish Times for a more detailed explanation of the issues involved in that with Arthur with Arthur Beasley. But in a way, it's it sort of sends up the same kind of signals as the Troy story, doesn't it? Yeah, and and you know, Jack mentioned that the Robert Troy story that it has many threads, and this is another story that has many threads. Um, and it has been simmering away for quite some time. Like you said, there's a more detailed podcast on it. But the bones of the story basically is that the Minister for Housing, Dara Bryan, he appointed a barrister, Remy Farrell, to look at a review of practices at Onboard Planola. Now, I, I think he appointed uh, Mr. Farrell in April. And what this followed were media reports, as you mentioned there from On the Ditch. Um, and the media reports were about allegations of conflicts of interest in decisions by the then deputy chairperson, Paul Hyde. So he was the deputy chairman of the board since 2019. He was first appointed in 2014 um, by, I think it was Phil Hogan at the time, who was then the Minister for Environment. And what this whole affair centres on is alleged conflicts of interest and alleged impropriety in his personal declarations to the board, to the uh, ABP. So just to put that in a bit of context, um, they are allegations, but uh, according to the law, any failure to comply with conflict of interest declarations, uh, that is a criminal offence that could carry a potential prison sentence of up to six months. And that has been uh, reported. Now, for his part, he has, Paul Hyde has, has denied any wrongdoing. Um, he initially stepped aside from his role when this review began, but he has since resigned. 
Um, what happened this week was that the Minister for Housing received that report from Remy Farrell and he's referred it on to the DPP, which I think we can all agree is a very significant move. Now, he hasn't actually published the report yet. He said he's waiting for advice from the DPP, Catherine Pierce, as to whether there would be any reason not to publish the report in terms of uh, whatever investigations the DPP um, uh, or whatever consideration they give to it. Now, there is, like I said, many threads because there's also another review. So there's a review by a senior management team within Onboard Planola um, which will examine, and I quote, uh, further allegations of wrongdoing, um, uh, but they haven't exactly said the specifics of what's at issue here. That report, I believe, will be given to the Minister for Housing, Dara Bryan, in the next few days. So this story has another life to it later in the week or possibly over the weekend or early next week. And what, I suppose what this has led to, um, even though we don't know all of the detail or all of the specifics that we do know the various investigations, what's led to are very, um, very understandable calls for reform within on board Planola. Um, Dara O'Brien was out and about yesterday in Wexford uh, following the, the flash flooding there after the heatwave broke. And he said he's going to bring proposals to Cabinet in September for a new system of appointing board members. And he said he would also bring in any legislation that was needed quite swiftly. He also said that this week, again, he will finalise the terms of reference for a review of a wider organisational reform of onboard Planola and that will take place with the state's planning watchdog and with a senior, and with a senior barrister. Um, and of course, then once you're talking, once you're in the realm of reforms and uh, all of the publicity around this case, then of course you get into the area of confidence, which kind of goes back to what you were talking about, is confidence in the system. And possibly also because it is such a contentious area and especially around the special development zones, which which Paul Hyde had particular responsibility for for overseeing, which was a, a particular mechanism, which has now been dispensed with partly because I think it has proved to be very problematic. Um, there's the appalling vista for the government of uh, of going back over decisions which might have been made or, or at least uh, court cases look see, seeking that. So, I mean... Action is required pretty quickly to re-establish confidence. Absolutely, and you know those, you know th- those zones you talk about, and those different planning applications. You know, huge uh, developments, and not only that, but it's a really critical, really important time for the planning body. You know, um, they are about to receive applications for some of the biggest infrastructure pro- uh, projects ever seen in the history of the state. You know, we're talking about um, massive offshore. Onshore wind farms, we're talking about Metrolink. Um, and I think that it's so important. And we, you know, I think some people as well might have followed the story and kind of been aghast because there's almost a thought that this, you know, issues with confidence with planning bodies, that that almost seems like something of the past. But clearly, we're, we're back grappling with the issue of confidence in planning bodies. Um, and I think that, you know, the reforms are clearly needed. Um, and the government is trying to, to stay ahead and on top of it. Um, but you're right, like there is an appalling vista here of potentially having to go back and look at other cases, depending, of course, on whatever uh, the two reviews say whenever they're published. Um, but clearly the uh, the import is of su- sufficient seriousness for it to have been referred on to the DPP. And I think a lot of people will be waiting and will be very interested to see the exact details of what the barrister Remy Farrell found and what the internal review by the senior management team found and also what exact proposals Dara O'Brien will bring um, in September to Cabinet. So Jack, 
Just looking at that, and it's important to state that Paul Hyde continues to, to state that he has done nothing wrong and we have no reason to disbelieve him. Um, but the reality is that he uh, was appointed to uh, a separate semi-state board by Simon Coveney, who was um, at the time somebody who he shared ownership of a yacht with in Cork. Uh, he was appointed to board Planola by another Fine Gael minister, Phil Hogan. And he was promoted to the position of vice chair under the ministership of a third Fine Gael minister, uh, Owen Murphy. When Darrow Bryan talks about reforming appointments processes, is that the kind of thing he's talking about? I think so. And I think that um, it's particularly unfortunate, perhaps, for, for Simon Coveney in some ways that he was the co-owner of a yacht with him. Because obviously one of Coveney's main political vulnerabilities is this idea that, you know, he's a kind of... Uh, elitist or a gilded elite, uh, a member of this kind of gilded elite class. And, um, you know, the fact that this guy who is under investigation um, is is part of the same kind of hobby, which is traditionally seen as a, as a kind of very uh, upper crust hobby, um, would reinforce that uh, for, for, for Coveney and for his detractors. Um, and, and I think that you're right that, you know, this sense that there is a potential coziness between uh, all the all the principles that you've mentioned um, is one that is kind of damaging and, and corrosive for those who hold political power and, and uh, you know, the, the sense that they exercise it in a particular way for the interests of, for narrow interests is one that is damaging and, and a, a charge that is leveled at them all the time. Um, so I think that that's where this story gets some bit of its political volatility from beyond just the kind of narrow confines of what did or didn't go on within on board Planola. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Jen, Jack mentioned at the top of the programme here that there are early ripples, maybe earlier ripples than usual, going on about budgets. Not because the budget is going to be earlier than usual, of course, is, is part of the reason. But also there's a lot of big decisions to be made. What are you hearing or what, are you, what is anybody hearing about what's going on there? Well, I remember when uh, we found out that the budget was going to be held earlier in September rather than October. I remember my first thought was, because I knew I'd be working through it August, was, yes, that's August sorted. <laughs> so all the kites that fly in September can now fly in August. And that's what's happening effectively now. I will say, like, it is quieter this week because I think what the, the process is, is that ministers write to the various to the two finance lads and basically outline the um, requests that they have for their departments um, and then the bilaterals take place. And I think those bilaterals will probably, for the main part, take place later in the month. But of course, there's a lot of talk about it. Um, anytime any of the ministers uh, or TDs are out for the very few and far between doorsteps of the summer season, they are asked about it. And one of the things which has come up uh, early doors is this idea of the 30%, the new 30% tax rate. Now, this was first mooted by Leo Varadkar in a speech to the Institute of European Affairs in March. And he said he had asked Pascal Donoghue to look into it. It was included in the tax strategy papers as an option and they looked at it. Um, and, you know, what we've seen then is the debate play out. Now, 
what has actually happened is that I think the coalition, people in all three parties are moving away from that idea. There is a couple of reasons for that. Uh, One of the reasons is the effect it could have on pensions. The other reason is that it's not as equitable as, say, indexing, if we really want to get into the research, indexing tax credits and tax bans. Um, There's also worries about the cost of it. Um, And I think what we'll probably see, rather than a 30% tax ban, which very much was, like I said, a Fine Gael suggestion, uh, probably be quietly ditched. Now, of course, what I'm told is it's still on the table and you never say never about anything in terms of budget, especially when you're when you're when you're writing budget stories, you're always very worried they're going to write something and say that's not going to happen. And then suddenly there's a meeting the following week and then it does happen. But Jen, is there not is there not a real pattern there going mm. back years that Leo Varadkar throws out off the top of his head something that he thinks would be a, a great idea and it's usually something that's very appealing, red meat for the base of, of Fine Gael mm. voters um, and then it never happens. Absolutely. And we've had those at election after election and budget Yeah, like if budget. you cast your mind back to any of the previous elections or, you know, manifestos or, you know, party thinkings, anything, you know, like that, Fine Gael and Leo Varg in particular, they always, they frequently do throw out these lines about, and it's always about tax, you know, it's always about income tax, it's often about the squeezed middle, um, it's always about focusing on squeezed middle, you know, the cost of childcare, the cost of, you know, and even when I was talking to someone in Fine Gael earlier this week about, as Fine Gael source, about this 30% tax, because Jack had a piece over the weekend that the Green Party weren't too happy at all about the proposals and they didn't think it would be workable in any sense. Of course, we went back to Fine Gael sources early in the week and asked them and it was really interesting to hear them say, well, it's not the be all and end all. You know, we never said this was the silver bullet, which is, you know, code for Paul Kors as we're totally going to take a step back here, back away from this. You know, and and the, the message was, well, we think, and this is what you always hear from Fine Gael, is that work should pay more. People should be able to keep more of what they earn, and I think the figure they gave was that the average earner, thirty-seven thousand euro a year, who gets a pay rise. Because I always talk about this pay rise this year, will lose half of it in income tax at the USC and PRSI, and that's not fair. They say that's the Finnegan message every single year, um, and so I wasn't surprised because I was covering that speech he gave to the Institute of European Affairs. I wasn't really surprised to hear him say the thirty percent idea, and I'm never really surprised to hear new tax ideas from from Fine Gael that are eye-catching. But this is one of those, again, that I think will fall by the wayside. So one of the, one way to describe that is rhetorical, Jack. Another way is just to describe it as bullshit. Um, I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not sure which 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 one you prefer. I think I I think I know which one is 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 more accurate myself. Um, Jen mentioned pay rises there, and surely that's one of the things. Um, you know, a lot of people will certainly expect and hope to get pay rises to reflect the rise in the cost of living that's happening as uh, you know as we speak. And if there isn't some fairly you know significant redrawing of the actual of the actual indexation of the tax bans themselves, people are going to get hit with a lot more tax. And that's really the straightforward thing that needs to happen on the income tax front, isn't it? Yeah, it's this old idea of, I think it's called bracket creep or something like that. It's a, it's an underlying issue within the kind of budgetary dynamics. Um, and it looks like, I mean, Jen, Jen has, has articulated there the kind of Fine Gael or Leo Varadkar gambit for a, a 30% uh, rate that was, I mean, you can kind of see how it makes sense politically in, in, in some narrow senses. Um you know, it would be a kind of standard bearer policy and it would very much appeal to that kind of better off cohort of the middle classes that, that Fine Gael derives a lot of its vote from. But like, I think that while it makes sense on, on one side of the political ledger, like it, it really doesn't on another, which is the fact that it would leave a million taxpayers uh, on the shelf in terms of getting a, a tax break in the budget when you compare it to the um, 
larger or more widely spread benefits that would arise from the indexation uh, and widening of, of, of tax bans. And um, that's also the approach that is agreed in the, in the programme for government. So, I mean, that's the, that's the political map that has been drawn. And deviating from that, you'd, you'd want to build a serious case for that. And it was clearly something that like, wasn't popular uh, I had that story about the Greens briefing against this. Um, I think there were there, there was there was more gentle um, comments from both the Greens and Fianna Fáil in the Sunday papers and the Sunday Independent and the Sunday Business Post, where they were kind of gently talking it down. There was some more vociferous off-record briefing that we had on Monday, and then on Monday and Tuesday, like I was on the radio with uh, Sean Fleming, the junior minister in the Department of Finance, the the Fianna Fáil junior minister in the Department of Finance, who was kind of talking about this and and. He was doing this great trick where he was saying, nothing's off the table and we're not discounting and it's not a terrible idea. But then he went on to describe the many ways in which it was a terrible idea and they'd never, they'd never support it. So it was just kind of, I do, I do think it's firmly off the table and, and I think that it'll be seen probably as, as an ill-advised gambit in the short term by Lee Varadkar because it's a, it's, a fairly, it's a fairly visible kind of political flop. Now, one could make the, the, the argument that he's planting the seed for next year if he wants to try and do it again or, you know, he's creating a bargaining chip that can be traded off in the wider kind of budgetary game. Um, and I think that this is kind of one of those questions that always um, gets asked about Lee Radker uh, and his various political gambits. It's like, has he made a mistake and been a bit foolish here or is he playing some kind of 4D chess that, we're like, that, that, that we can only see at the moment of the kind of prestige or the reveal and, and you know, that kind of gets to the the heart of the political conundrum that is Leo Varadkar. But um, sure, we'll see at the end of the day. Uh, I think just to bring it back to the budget, um, I think we will get the, the widening of the bans approach because it is more broad strokes. And I think that that kind of gets down to what I think will be the theme of this year's budget. Last year's budget was kind of boring. It kind of went through the wash quite quickly. Um, it wasn't quite a COVID budget. It wasn't quite a post-COVID budget. Um, there was no real theme that emerged. But I think this year's theme is going to be households and taxpayers and the degree to which the government um, can actually protect them both in this year with short-term one-off measures that don't fall under the rubric of um, budget 2023 but will be announced on budget day as part of this kind of one billion plus package of measures and uh, more long-term reforms to, to tax and welfare. And I think that, you know, the part of the political kind of gamesmanship or horse trading that we'll see over the next little while is the relative size of and, and composition of the tax and welfare packages. Fine Gael want them to be of equivalent sizes. Uh, the welfare packages, you know, looks like something in the region of one billion and the tax package is already agreed at one billion. But from that tax package, you have to pay for the extension, the likely extension, the almost certain extension of tax breaks on um, fuel, uh, excise and back cuts on, on fuel, which is going to cost probably hundreds of millions in a full year. So that depletes the, the, the power of the government to deliver much on, on, on tax breaks. So whether that moves up or down, I, I don't know. It'll all come out in the wash. And then you have other things like, you know, they promised this big uh, childcare package. So, you know, that's, that's going to, there's an absolute budget imperative. And I say that not only as a parent of young children, but, you know, the fact that they've been out early and often on this, going back even to springtime, saying they're going to do something in the budget on childcare. They've created this big thing that they have to deliver on. And the fact that it's kind of starting early this year and we are getting so many kites flown 
even though, like, as Jen said, the asks haven't gone in, much less the next stage in the process, which is to the bilateral meetings where things really get thrashed out, the fact that you get so many kites so early in the piece creates this risk that you end up disappointing because so many things have been put into, into the wild and then don't end up materialising. So um, it's a really interesting budget. I think, I think the theme will be, will be um, households and uh, protecting people from, the, uh, from, from the, the, the vagaries of the inflationary times that we live in. Um, but there is always that risk of of, of disappointing, um, and I think that you know there will be there will be rows uh, a plenty come early autumn. Yeah, and there is one one other major part to this, Jen, along with the you know the the one off supports for people uh, who are particularly vulnerable to the cost of living pressures at the moment, and increases in social welfare to take account of of the rate of inflation, and that's the public service pay bill, which is kind of slightly to the side of the direct budget, but negotiations with public service unions will continue. And that could be a, you know, a, a big challenge for the government in the in the latter halves of this year. And, you know, with the possibility of an industrial action. As Absolutely. Well. Yeah, it's kind of been rumbling away over the summer, to be honest with you. Um, there doesn't really seem to be a world of movement between either side. I think they're both waiting to see what the bottom line is, um, like I say, for the for for each other side. Now, like Jack said, the overall budget package, well, it, right now, it's slated to be six point seven billion. That could change depending on what money is found down the back of the couch, which always happens before budget day. Um, and there, there's the tax package that's separate; that's around one billion. And then there's spending measures around two point seven billion. That has to include a public sector pay deal. And I think there might be some people in the unions who would look at the amount that's put aside for a public sector pay deal and say, clearly, the government maybe have already decided what uh, what their bottom line is or how far they're willing to go in terms of the increases that they will offer to the unions, but they haven't got to the stage yet of the final offer being made and the final offer being accepted or rejected because the position is that the unions want a very high increase uh, to match inflation, which, you know, is at record levels of above 9%. The position of the government is that that inflation level won't always be that high and that they would hope it would be much less next year and also that they couldn't afford um, such an increase. So there's there's still a landing ground to be found there. But of course, like you say, there's always the prospect. And every time you hear interviews with union leaders uh, on the radio over the last couple of weeks and they're asked about um, industrial action, they very much say that's that's still on the cards. So that'll be a big part um, of the budget. But the fact that they, like I say, factored in a, a huge chunk of change into it for that would make you think that they believe somewhat that a deal uh is possible. Um, and that is, like you say, one one really big element to it. And like Jack outlined, there's that is as part of the overall package. So there's two budgets almost, if you like. Uh, there's the household tax side that Jack uh, mentioned in the welfare, which is just the extra spending that we have every year. And then there's the separate cost of living package. Um, and that will have a lot of once-off measures, you know, like the electricity credit, perhaps be paid again. 200 euro, you could be looking at one-off double weekly payments, in all welfare rates, you could be looking at another uh, uh, double payment in the child benefit. You could be looking at an increase in the fuel allowance um, and perhaps longer periods of the household benefits package. All these different elements as part of that. So there's a lot of different moving parts and the public sector pay deal is one of them, but it is a very big one. And just in relation to the public sector, Jack, you have a very interesting story today um, about the ambulance service which is under all kinds of strains and suffering all kinds of problems. Largely, is it fair to say, because um, they're finding it difficult to recruit and they're undermanned after after COVID? Yeah, recruit and retain, really. So um, this uh, story, which we ran on, on Monday, uh, was based on an internal 
presentation made by the, the HSE, which in turn is based on this kind of human resources plan for the ambulance service. Um, and the, the visible part of this degradation in um, if not the quality, but certainly the speed of the ambulance services, is the speed at which they can respond to the most uh, serious calls that come in, these so-called echo and delta calls. And, and that has been known to be deteriorating over time and you know, the, the compliance with this 19-minute target to respond to these uh, calls has been slipping and that's been visible in PQs and stuff like that. But what this report that we got our hands on and published on Monday says is that basically the root cause of this is um, the fact that there's a huge kind of post-pandemic effect which is accentuated by you know the great resignation, which is a wider thing that's discussed within the world of human resources where people are seeking better terms and more flexibility. Um, and this is presenting a real problem in terms of uh, keeping the people that they have, but also attracting sufficient numbers into the, the ambulance service. Uh, and effectively, the thing is being kept together with, uh, with a, a large overtime bill of about 1.5 million euros a month. Um, but there's a real proper risk, a real kind of strategic uh, and clinical risk emerging. Uh, and some of the, the language in the, in the report is, is quite serious around this because it talks not only about... Um, about what the ambulance service is trying to do uh, now, it's talking about what uh, it's it's supposed to do in the future, which is kind of realign itself more along the lines of Sancha care and deliver more care in the community. And it's kind of saying, no matter, no, no, don't worry about that. But we can barely kind of keep the wolf from the door now. And and some of the language is quite uh, is quite quite striking, really, because it talks about how um, the recruit, recruitment is being surpassed by demand for the organisation services. It poses a serious risk to the ability of the national ambulance service to deliver urgent and emergency care services, which is obviously what ambulances do, urgent and emergency care services, and talks about a critical and immediate need to, to increase workforce capacity. And and I was kind of thinking about this in recent days and, and writing about it a little bit. And, and I think that, you know, part of the reason why this, this story really matters is um, because people and punters and citizens, generally speaking, only kind of come into contact with the state uh, or state services to some extent um, when, they're in, when they're in dire straits, whether that's in need of a welfare payment or whatever. Um, but the most acute example of that is probably if you fall and hit your head or you, know, you have a heart attack and, and, and the state comes to rescue you in the form of an ambulance. And if there's a sense you know, that, that that kind of end of the social contract isn't being held up, that the you know, public service provision is corroding over time, I think that that like, kind of damages that, that wider social contract that exists between uh, voters and the state and, and you know, um, further hammers home that sense that you know, we're in a kind of state of, of perpetual decline or, or something like that. You know? and, and I think that that's kind of why politicians and policymakers should be concerned about this beyond the immediate kind of issue that there's a kind of critical and, and clinical um, side of this needs to be assessed. But there, there's, a broad, there's a broader question there, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it is a symptom of the broader malaise, though, isn't there? I mean, particularly now because, you know, there's pressure in in the labour market. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of labour shortages in a lot of areas. So when you have something like this, a job which is, you know, highly skilled, uh, highly pressurized, lots of unsocial hours to work, um, you know, really quite difficult. If the terms and conditions don't stand up, well, then you're going to end up with the same kind of problems that we see in other parts of the health service, don't we, with, you know, frontline nursing and things like that too. I think that's true. And, and you know, and you see a, a, a greater reliance on things like agency staff across the healthcare service. And, and, and one would presume that this is not something that is confined to the National Ambulance Service or indeed 
to the HSE, but probably exists within the wider public service. And, and you know, the whole kind of challenge, I suppose, of, of knitting together a coherent kind of uh, model of public service provision at a time when it's difficult to attract or retain staff, I think, is, is, is a wider issue. Um, and, and, you know, as I say, as and when bits of that kind of public service provision uh, picture fall away or, or, or underwhelming, there's a political consequence to that. And I think that that's why this is a story that is politically important beyond just something that's, that's important for those um, ambulance, ambulance watchers or ambulance chasers who, who cover uh, healthcare politics day in, day out. Just one last question before we go um, to you, Jen, if you wouldn't mind. I, I mean, I've been quite taken aback by the way the state has managed to uh, take in such a large number of refugees from Ukraine in a relatively short space of time. It dwarfs any similar similar project in the past. And it kind of speaks, it seems to me, a little bit to the ability of the Irish state to respond quite well when it's an ad hoc emergency. Uh, but the Irish state is not so good for dealing with medium or long-term um, crises, which is maybe the phase that we're moving into now. And we're looking at reports this week that uh, project pretty soon that there'll be 48,000 refugees from Ukraine in the country, which is a lot. It's dwarfed by the number that are in uh, some countries in Central and Eastern Europe. But it puts huge strains on the state, doesn't it? And, you know, are there any sign? there are signs that it might be starting to crack? Definitely. Um, you know, obviously, it was a couple of weeks ago that we learned um, from through a report by Simon Carswell that the state had officially run out of space, effectively, to house um, and look after Ukrainian refugees. And we hit that point a couple of weeks ago already. Um, and like you say, the modelling shows that there will probably be up to and around 50,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees having arrived into the country by the end of this month. Um, and, you know, like this, the if you look at the actual statistics, they're quite interesting. They could they kind of go up and down, but there's a huge level of unpredictability around it. And also around the, the refugees who do come in, whether they will need accommodation or not. There were some days there in recent weeks when nearly every person who came in to Ireland uh, from Ukraine, uh, they all needed to be accommodated. And I think the first, we saw that pinch point, like I said, referenced in terms of running out of accommodation. The next big pinch point that I see, uh, which I think will be really, really problematic, um, is the issue of the refugees who are staying in student accommodation at the moment. So we know that there, I think there are anywhere up to around 4,000 um, Ukrainian refugees staying in, in student accommodation. Obviously, people are due to come back to college now uh, in two or three weeks, three or four weeks. Um, and yesterday, a circular went out to people uh, who are staying in student accommodation. And they were told that very shortly they would be visited by officials who would give them their transfer forms and that if possible, they should avail of pledged accommodation from the public because then at least they know where they will be going because they've they've chosen to avail of that accommodation and they'll know the standard. But the insinuation was, of course, that if they don't go for that option of pledged accommodation, provided that's obviously available, and there's been a lot of commentary around that, if they don't go for that option, then they there is no way of saying the standard of accommodation that they will be staying in or the location. So it's a hugely unpredictable time and you can really see a situation whereby this changeover is due to happen to allow students back into accommodation and it won't have happened in time and there's already issues with student accommodation I mean every kind of accommodation effectively um in in the state and I think it'll be really um a really difficult one for for the government to square you know the this the people who are staying in that accommodation at the moment have been told that Midwest Simon are the organization that will come out they will contact people there and they will help them um, with the move and that they'd be informed of their new location as soon 
as possible. So, uh, and it's also interesting to note, uh, there was a report in our paper today, that the payments to, I think it's around 1,600 people who have offered rooms and vacant properties, that they're just starting now. That's a payment of 400 euro um, a month. And that's six months, you know, after uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So it's 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 a massive issue. What's one that uh, my, uh, Jack in particular, um, we're checking in on every day. Um, but I do see this as becoming not a situation that improves, but one that disimproves. Jack, do you think the state can get a handle on this over the next few months or do you really see it blowing up? Uh, no, I think it will. Um, I think they may, they may be given a bit of a... A bit of a break in that there, there may be some more hotel capacity coming on stream as that um, very intensive kind of holiday season subsides. But like that just really, it, it really makes the emergency accommodation side of things uh, bigger. Because the real problem that they're facing, and we've covered this before, but the real problem that they're facing, and it's an unfortunate word, but um, is decanting people out of emergency accommodation or short-term accommodation, be that a hotel, a student accommodation, or just a kind of church or parish hall, and finding somewhere uh, more medium term. Um, we ran a story uh, about a week or 10 days ago about how a group of developers back in late March, early April, had approached the state and offered to, on a cost basis, so a non-profit basis, um, upgrade vacant buildings uh, to make them suitable for medium term accommodation uh, for Ukrainian refugees and how that that offer had just kind of gone nowhere um, and I think that that speaks to a broader and, and when you talk to people on the on, in government there is a broader frustration um, with the lack of progress that seems to be made um, by the Department of Housing in particular in bringing forward these medium-term solutions. So uh, when this all kicked off in April there was a government decision that the Department of Children or I, I suppose more appropriately we should call the Department of Integration um, because that's the function they're fulfilling here they would take in uh, alongside the Department of Justice, the, the refugees as they came into the country, uh, look after giving them their PPS numbers uh, and find them a bed. And then that over more medium term, the Department of Housing would bring forward solutions um, on, uh, on, 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 on that side. And, and the, the, there's a dearth of those solutions going forward. In fact, I think that the piece in the paper today where, where we, I talk about um, this uh, 5,000 bed figure that the Department of Housing has been circulating and saying, you know, we identified uh, beds for 5,000 people and passed them over to the Department of Children. But when the Department of Children looked at that list, it, half of it was already full. So there's a real gap between the kind of rhetorical suggestion of, of what's being provided and the reality. Um, and there's, you know, there's discussion and has been for many months about modular housing. My understanding is modular housing won't come on stream until November. Um, and that's when it starts being constructed. Um, so I think there's a real mind the gap issue here. Um, and I think that, you know, it's it's one that is, it's a real, it's just part of this autumn of discontent, winter discontent thing that we've talked about coming down the tracks. Um, and it's also massively expensive, of course. You're talking about full year costs of upwards of a billion euros, um, 100 million for every, uh, I think it is, uh, 1,000 people in, um, in, in hotel accommodation on a full year basis. It's a lot of money, you know. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to Jen and to Jack and good luck to them in their endeavours over the next couple of weeks. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon, but do remember you can always contact us with your views or your questions or your points at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.